Well, there was a story about this young pastor who was taking, he had taken over this church. And um, it was a long time church started by this original pastor who had retired. And, and one of the things that he struggled with is that when they would pray, half the congregation would stand and the other half would kneel. And not that was bad, but what they would do is they would yell at one another or scream at one another and they would say, no, we should stand. No, we should kneel. No, we should stand. No, we should kneel. And they just like were angry at each other all the time. And this young pastor was flummoxed. He was like, how am I going to fix this? And he couldn't figure it out. And then one day he had this like bright idea. He's like, I'm going to go talk to the guy that started this church. I'm going to go talk to that original pastor because he's still alive. In fact, he's in a, in a home, but he's, he's 99, but he's still with it. So he went and he visited this pastor. He said, here's, I've got this predicament. He goes, I need to ask a question. When you prayed in the church, I, I'm curious what the tradition was. Was it, did you stand when you prayed? And the pastor said, no, that was not the tradition. And he says, oh, so you kneeled when you prayed. And he says, no, that was not their tradition. And he's like, well, I, I don't know what to do. Because half the congregation stands, the other half kneels, one half screams, the other half yells. And he's like, the old pastor says, ah, that was the tradition. <laughs> True? Right? Amongst the people that God has given this command to be unified, to be united, we find ourselves divided over some of the silliest of things. And it continues today, but yet we just sort of imitate what we see in the culture around us as we continue to, to be divided on things like this. When we are called to be children of light, to be children of peace, to be a people of hope, to wherever we go, and as long as it depends on us to live at peace with everyone. But we are like everyone, and there's conflict in our lives, and, and there's conflict in our families. You know, David, in, in the book of Psalms, in Psalm 133, gives us this beautiful poem about the beauty of unity and what unity can do, in, not only in a family, in a life, but in, in the world. And this is how, it, how he writes it. In Psalm 133, he says this. He says, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live together in unity. It is like the precious oil poured on the head, running down on the beard, running down on Aaron's beard, running down on the collar of his robe. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. For there the Lord bestows his blessing, even life forevermore. David tells us that to God, unity amongst his people is the most beautiful of things. And the way he describes it is in some really strange terms for us today. He talks about this anointing of Aaron's head with oil. And it would remind you if, of the story, if you knew it, in, in Exodus, where, where they were coming out of the land of Egypt and instituting the sacrificial system and the priesthood. And, and Moses was instructing Aaron as to how he would consecrate himself before he would enter into the Holy of Holies to offer the, the sacrifice for the people. And it was prescribed by God that he would take a certain spice mix a very specific spice mix, along with oil, and it was only to be used for this purpose. This particular mix was not to be used by anyone else in any other circumstance. 
and they would anoint Aaron, who had full beard, they didn't shave their beards, right, with this oil, and not just like a drop, you know, but just like pour it over his head, and, and you could picture this oil sort of like running down his face and into his beard and down onto his clothes and just sort of covering him with this fragrant oil. You know, yesterday we, we were... Um, we, we celebrated the life of Patty Richter, one of our members who had passed away, and, and it was a beautiful but yet sad day. And we were before the service, uh, pastor came and, and we anointed and, and took oil, this myrrh, and, and we rubbed it on our fingers, and during this prayer, we anointed our foreheads with oil, and we anointed our hands with oil, and this myrrh had this just fragrance to it that every time your hand sort of like went in front of your face, you still smelt it. I smelt it like all day. And if you were to touch somebody, they, they could smell it on you. And it was just this beautiful smell. And, and that's the picture that you get of Aaron as he leaves the temple. This oil, this anointing fragrance would have gone with him. And everybody that he would have passed by, you know, remember your grandma's old perfume when she passed by, you would smell it. And you'd be like, that's grandma, right? And so it would be this like smell and be like, Oh, that smells like the presence of God. And it would be this beautiful smell, and whoever Aaron touched would, it would transfer to them. And, and he's saying unity is that beautiful. Unity is a beautiful thing, and it, and it impacts other people because you can take it with you. But it's also refreshing. It's like the dew that comes down from the mountains in a dry, arid place, and it provides sustenance, and it provides life-giving properties. Unity can do that as well. Not just within the individual, but within families and with communities and within the world. David is saying unity in the family of God is a beautiful thing, and it is to be carried into the world. We are to be bringers of peace, bringers of some of the most beautiful things unity and peace and reconciliation. That's not what we see, is it? Within our families, within our workplaces, within our neighborhoods, and certainly on social media, because I don't have to look at you to criticize you, and I can say some of the most hurtful things, post some of the most hurtful things in these sly, passive-aggressive ways, and we just perpetuate this cycle of conflict in our culture when we of all people are called to be people of peace to be people that bring reconciliation and we try right because it's hard work we try and it's so easy to fall into that cycle it's kind of like this dr seuss book where it says day play we play all day night fight we fight all night we get up in the morning we have such the grandest plans only to find ourselves at the end of the day or maybe at the end of the month, and we go into Christmas saying, I'm not going to let Uncle Don get to me this Christmas. I'm not going to let Uncle Don get to me this Christmas. And then all Uncle Don has to say is one thing, and it's like I go home frustrated. Every year it happens like that. Every year it happens like that. I have the greatest of tensions, but I can't seem to get past it. So together, this month of January, we want to go on a journey because it's not just something we take one, two, buckle my shoe, and here we are, reconcilers. We're called to go on this journey of becoming reconcilers. There's movement that's required. We have to move from where we're at. We have to break the cycle. We're, we're given instructions, and so for this month, we want to help one another take those steps. And to do that, we want to look at a family found in the Old Testament. It's the family of Abraham and Sarah. 
You know, their story begins in, in Genesis chapter 12, and it's this family that God chooses to bring forth a blessing into the world that through Abraham and his wife, who at that time had no children, he promised to make them into a, a family of many nations. And through his family, God would bring blessing into all the world. And as you look at this family, you may have this impression that they resemble more like the Brady's but really, they're more like the Bundys. There's dysfunction and there's all kinds of tension and conflict in this family. There's deceit and selfishness. And it starts with Abraham and his deception. And it goes to Isaac and then to his two grandsons. And, and we see this perpetuate all throughout the line. And, and so we want to focus on this family, this dysfunctional family that has all this turmoil and this ugliness and all this because of... Have, have any of you experienced that in your families? All right, if you've lived long enough or been in a relationship long enough, you've encountered it. And so we want to look at this family because that's what we see. But here's the thing. It didn't start with this family. It goes all the way back to the original family. When they decide they know better and they have better plans and they, 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 they disobey God and God kicks them out of the garden, right? But it and there creates this divide between God and, and the couple. But that wasn't the only division. There was then a division between the man and the woman. There was this division that said there's going to be this tension between you because now there's sin that's entered the world, and that exists. But God says in the midst of all that, there's a promise that he's going to send someone to fix all that. And he promises to, to do that through Eve's offspring. And now we see Abraham, and God continues his promise, and he says, through you, Abraham, through your family, I will make you into a great nation, and through that nation will come my hope for the world. There will be hope that leads to reconciliation, that re leads to someone who will heal this divide. And so we want to look at the grandsons throughout this entire series. We're going to look at the two grandsons of Abraham, the two sons of Isaac and Rebekah, as you heard read earlier, Jacob and Esau. These two boys that we see from the very beginning did not get along. We read in Genesis chapter 25 that in the womb, in, in Rebecca's womb, that these two boys tussled and wrestled and fought in her womb. And, and she has this picture of these guys just twisting around. You know, it's like this alien moment, you know, where it's like this thing is like doing all this. And I remember when Terry was pregnant with Catherine, our first, and the, for the first time I saw like her stomach move. And I put my hand on it. It was like, like, Ugh. <laughs> right? That's just like creepy. I don't know if it was an elbow, a foot, or what it was. But imagine having two of those in you. And then she's like, you think it's weird looking at it. How about in you, right? Women, I, you that have been pregnant and bore children and have experienced it, especially you who bore twins know what that's like. But now think about those twins just wrestling all the time. And Rebecca goes to God. It's like, why is this happening to me? And this is what God says to her in Genesis 25. He says, two nations are in your womb. Not like literal, you know, but Two people from within you shall be divided. One shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. You've got these twins inside of you, and this is just the beginning. They're going to wrestle with one another. They're going to be in conflict with one another. One is going to be stronger than the other, but the older one is going to serve the younger one. 
And it's like, no wonder she had no more kids. But that's what happened. We see these two boys come forward. And, and when you look at them, they're fighting within the womb and they're fighting all the way out. Like they're wrestling and, and competing as to who's going to be born first because the one born first is the more important. The one born first will be the one that gets the blessing. And so what happens? Esau's born first and what's Jacob doing? Grabbing his heel, like trying to pull him back in. And that's these two boys. And so we want to take a look throughout this series at these two boys and, and sort of understand God's plan and how we can see a way through conflict, a way to heal relationships. As we look at Esau, this word Esau resembles this Hebrew word that means hairy, and that was Esau. He's just this hairy, burly man that liked to hunt and, and kill the game, and he'd bring it home and, and eat it. You know, he's like a man's man kind of guy. And it's like, I picture this. You remember Tormund from uh, Game of Thrones? Right, the wildling, that's, that's like Esau. That's the best picture I could give you of Esau, right? And Jacob is not that guy. Jacob's the guy we're told that likes to hang around the tents and he kind of likes to hang around with the women in the camp and he tends after the sheep and he's not like Esau at all. He's, he's more like, like a Ryan Gosling, <laughs> right? It's like these two guys are, you know, brothers from the same mother and not the same. And they have really nothing in common. And you can sort of see Esau with all his hunter-gatherer guys mocking Ryan Gosling, right? You know, looking at a pretty boy. Yeah, that's what I look at you, you know? And then, and then over here, you've got like Jacob with all his guys, you know, mocking him. Say, yeah, go out and kill him. We'll eat what you bring back. Thank you very much, you know? And, and so they just don't get along. And you see that it just continues that way. And it even gets worse than that. If you remember what was just read, why does it get worse? Because now Jacob and Rebekah have favorites, right? Jacob loves, or no, uh, Isaac and Rebekah have favorites. Isaac says he loved Esau and loved to eat the game that Esau brought. But Rebekah loved Jacob. You think that made things better? Yeah, you're a mama's boy. Yeah, well, you're dad's son. And it just continued. And it just escalated into this ugliness within this family. And you get this feeling, and, and like I said, if you've lived long enough, if you've been in a family long enough, you've experienced this kind of tension, and you, you experience it, and it's, like, it's almost like we can't escape it. It just seems to follow us from generation to generation, and we can't escape it. It's like when you're younger and you ask your dad, it's like, Dad, why, why, do, why don't we have Thanksgiving with Uncle John and Aunt Doris? And dad's like, like looking around for mom. He's like, come, come over here. He's like, you know, it, it happened long ago before you were born. You know, Uncle John, your mom's brother, married Doris. And we always had Thanksgiving here. And every year things went great until one year, Aunt Doris brought a pumpkin pie. And you're like, what does that have to do with anything? Don't we eat pumpkin pie on Thanksgiving? He's like, yep, we do. Except pumpkin pie is your mom's thing. And she's the one that bakes pumpkin pies. And one year, Aunt Doris, knowing this, brings a pumpkin pie to Thanksgiving. And now we celebrate Thanksgiving apart. You have a story like that in your family? Something that from long ago, somebody did something that seems so innocent, but yet it caused a great divide and you just can't seem to escape it. It just seems to follow your family. And you're like, how are we going to 
ever change this? And you look at these two brothers and you wonder the same thing. How is it ever going to be fixed? Well, as we'll find out, there's a way. There's a way to escape this endless cycle of conflict. You know, we said last week that we can't change our past. We can't change it. We can't deny it. We can't change it, but we can repeat it. Right? We can just keep living in this loop of conflict and keep doing things like everybody else and just live with the frustration, or we can attempt to participate and heal it. While we can't change the past, we can participate in the healing of the past. But in order for the past to be healed, in order for there to truly be reconciliation, somebody's going to have to take the first step. Because reconciliation requires two. Forgiveness only requires one person. Reconciliation takes two. But in order for that to happen, somebody's got to take the first step. Which is why we're talking about this story about Abraham. Back in chapter 12, we're told that God promises to bring forth this child, bring forth the blessing for the nations. And in chapter 15, we see that God makes a covenant with Abraham. A covenant is this promise. They promise, two promise to, to, to participate and do their side and to hold up their end. And they would have this ceremony. And as you read through this kind of bizarre text, you see God telling Abraham, okay, I need you to go out and collect these animals. And when you've collected these animals, I want you to cut them in half. And you cut them in half and you lay them apart. And you line them up on each side, sort of creating this aisle like this. And what would happen in this covenant ceremony is that they would make promises and then both men would walk through this aisle. And in doing so, they're saying to one another, if I don't hold up my end, you can do to me what we did to these animals. And so Abraham, knowing what God instructed him to do, knew exactly what God was asking him to do. And so he cut up the animals and he sat by the fire and he sat by the fire and he sat by the fire all day. And nothing happened. And so as nightfall came, he's sort of sleepy and he's dozy. And whether he's sleeping or dreaming or whatever, he's like his eyes open and he sees this fire pot passing between these pieces. This floating fire pot. Now fire in the Old Testament represents God, his righteousness. You see the fire, the bush, the burning bush, God's presence. You see Isaiah in the, in the throne room and the coal coming across, it's God. Fire represented the righteousness of God. And so this fire pot represents God. But it's strange because in a covenant ceremony, the lesser of the two individuals would be the one to proceed through the pieces first. But nothing happens. It's God that passes between these pieces. And Abraham is never asked to walk between these pieces. And so what's happening here? Well, God is saying to Abraham... I've made all these promises to you, and I will hold up my end. And if I don't hold up my end, you can do to me what you did to these pieces. But he's also saying to Abraham, if you don't keep up your end, then you can do to me what we did to these pieces. God takes the first step. 
God takes the first step and says, if you don't hold up your end, I will pay the price for you. And that's exactly what God did. We see, as we just celebrated Christmas, that God sent his son into the world to keep up that promise that he made long ago. And through Abraham, God takes the first step and comes into the world to reconcile us into himself. You know, we sing that John Wesley hymn, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, right? Peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinner reconciled. God has taken the first step and he has reconciled us into himself. We have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ has done. What he is asking us to do is to take the second step. And that is to share that news with the world and to be a peace bringer in our families. To help heal that divide and to break out of that cycle and keep repeating the conflict, but yet be people of peace, be a reconciler is what God is calling us to do. Jesus, as he sees the crowds and the multitudes applying or coming to him, he looks upon the people and we're told that he has compassion on them in Matthew chapter 9. And he heals them and he calls his disciples and tells them, the harvest is ripe, but the workers are few. He's calling all of us into that harvest field, into our families, into our relationships, to be reconcilers, to join him on that journey. And Isaiah says, we should go up the mountain, to the mountain of God, to the God of Jacob. We should go to his house, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. This path of reconciliation that brings life it breaks this cycle that you seem so ill-equipped to, to, to break. So desperate to breathe that air. God is saying, I can help you if you will just take that step with me. God says, unity is beautiful. And it, it brings beauty and life to the people that you offer it to. You know, I have a, I'm a father of three children. And I absolutely hate it when I see them fighting. And the, and the middle one, my son, two girls on either side, he knows exactly the buttons to push of both girls. And, and, and they know he knows it, but it still doesn't lessen the frustration. And, and, and I look at him, I'm like, why are you doing that? He says, well, because it's fun. And I'm like, but stop. No, stop. I, 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 I get that, but I, it, it doesn't bring me joy. What brings me joy is that I see you united, that you care for one another, that you stick up for one another, that you, you're together. It's not perfect. It's, it's messy, but you guys are together. You know, I would, I would just die. It would kill me again. It's after I was gone that I, I, I could see one of my children conspiring with another one against the third. That would just break my heart. And I think that's why God the Father looks down and says, unity would be beautiful to see my children working together to bring peace into this world. 
that they would not be conspiring or, or plotting against one, or the, one another, but they would be working together to bring this beautiful thing to a world that so desperately needs to break out of this cycle of conflict and hatred. But it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard, and it's going to require together doing this. And to be reminded, that's not dad. That's how, not how dad wants us to live. He wants us to be united. And so we ask you, will you join us on this journey? These next four weeks, will you come back and, and, and join us? Now, if you don't have conflict in your family, I, I understand you're excused. But if you, if you have experienced that, we would invite you, come back and see if Jesus' ways can't make a difference in your life, in your family. I pray you come back and join us.